Several years ago, there was a book that came out that was titled The Year of Living Biblically. It was written by a non-Christian named A.J. Jacobs, and it's a funny book where A.J. details spending an entire year committed to obeying all of the commands in the Bible as literally as he could. He did it while living in New York, so he grew a beard, he dressed like Moses, and he started to eat kosher. For example, on day 62 of his experiment, he tried to put into practice the Old Testament command of stoning an adulterer. And so he records wandering into Central Park and meeting a man in his 70s sitting on a park bench. And A.J. told the man, he said, I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, stoning adulterers. And this is how A.J. records the rest of the conversation. You're stoning adulterers, the man asked. Yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. I'm an adulterer, the man replied. You're currently an adulterer? Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now. You going to stone me? If I could, yes, that'd be great. I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. He's serious. This isn't a cute old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. He says, I fish for my pebbles from my back pocket. I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say, just these little guys. I open up the palm of my hand and show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabs one out of my hand, then flings it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I'm stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move. But now there's nothing stopping me from retaliating. An eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. I'll punch you right in the kisser, he says. Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery. Now, the reason this story is funny isn't because adultery is humorous. It's, it's not. In fact, it's a serious sin. But we laugh at the thought of someone being hit with little pebbles on a park bench in Central Park. You know, we think these Old Testament laws, they don't apply to us today. But my guess is you don't think twice about eating crab legs, shrimp, or wearing a cotton polyester blend shirt, although those are both forbidden in the Old Testament. But that leads us to a bigger question as a Christian is, how am I supposed to relate to the Old Testament? We think that the law was for Jewish people, not Christians. But that's all Old Testament stuff. We're, we're New Testament Christians, so why do I have to pay attention to the law? And that's an important question because the Old Testament makes up over two-thirds of the Bible. Six, 39 of the 66 books are from the Old Testament. So, what do we do with it? Jesus himself answers that question in our text today. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So today, we're going to discover that the Old Testament is like uncovering a hidden treasure chest that holds the keys to unlocking the depth and the beauty of our faith. You see, the Old Testament isn't just a collection of a bunch of ancient stories and rules. It's the foundation on which our faith stands. So today, we're going to peel back layers of misconception, confusion, and neglect that may have kept us from fully embracing the richness of the Old Testament. And underneath, we'll find a treasure of divine promises, prophetic glimpses of the coming Messiah, and timeless principles for righteous living. 
So, so the big idea that I all want us to, to grasp today is that we should embrace the Old Testament as a vital foundation for our faith. Understanding that Jesus fulfills its message, he transforms its demands, and he empowers us to live out its timeless principles. We're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now I'll shoot straight. This is a challenging passage. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that verses 17 through 20 are among the most difficult in all of the Bible. But together, we're going to seek to understand what Jesus is teaching us. Verse 17 begins the body of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 16 form the introduction, and Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27 form the conclusion. If you've ever written a paper before, an essay in English, you know that you need an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. So today, we begin the body of this sermon. And the beginning of the body and the end of the body, there are two phrases, law and prophets. So the law and the prophets form a bracket around the beginning and the end of the sermon. And what we see, first of all, is that Jesus affirms the enduring, not temporal authority of the Old Testament. Jesus establishes the divine authority and origin of the Old Testament Scriptures. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the reason Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets is because people thought that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is responding to criticism that he's not fully orthodox in his commitment to the Old Testament. By emphasizing law and the prophets, Jesus is referring to the entire Old Testament, including the moral, ceremonial, civil laws, as well as the prophetic writings. Law refers to the Torah the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets refers to the remaining part of the Old Testament. And Jesus here affirms the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, linking them together as a cohesive whole. He highlights the importance of the Old Testament when he states in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, iota, or in Greek, yoda, that's the the smallest Greek letter in their alphabet. And and the word dot, that refers to a little tiny stroke that would differentiate between different Hebrew letters. So in English, it would be like us saying, dotting your I and crossing your T's. The, The smallest of letters. Even the smallest details of God's law are essential. 
It's amazing how the smallest letter, the smallest stroke of a pen can make a huge difference. Consider the difference between these two statements. Let's eat kids and let's eat kids. Small difference, right? Small, but but huge. One implies that you're eating children, and the second implies you're calling your kids to dinner. I don't know if you get caught up in grammatical debates, but there's a, there's a, uh, people get pretty frenzied over whether a comma should go before the final conjunction in a series of three or more elements. This is, this special comma is known as an Oxford comma. And for the record, I am pro-Oxford comma because I think it helps clarify sentences. Okay. We like the Oxford comma. Awesome. So, here's why I think the Oxford comma is important. Consider this sentence. I love my parents, Sherlock Holmes and Wonder Woman, okay? I love my parents, Sherlock Holmes and Wonder Woman. Now, without the Oxford comma, it implies that Sherlock Holmes and Wonder Woman would be your parents, okay? A small detail can make a huge difference. And what Jesus is saying is every bit of the Old Testament is God's revealed word. It's scripture. It's divine. It endures. And we need it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of scripture. Now, some people misinterpret this. They hold an erroneous view of minimizing the Old Testament. Some people have misunderstood Jesus' words and ministry to mean that the Old Testament is now less significant. And when we minimize the Old Testament, we risk missing out on the depth of God's revelation and the richness of His redemptive narrative that spans all of the Bible. This misinterpretation diminishes the importance of understanding the historical and theological context in which Jesus spoke. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. We have to keep in mind, Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi, and so he spoke within the framework of the Old Testament teachings and expectations. And it's through embracing the Old Testament that we gain a deeper understanding of Jesus' words, actions, and the fulfillment of God's plan through him. When Tim Keller was a young Christian, he said, I found the Old Testament to be a confusing and off-putting part of the Bible. But when he was a student in college, someone asked the great Bible scholar Alec Moiter a question about the seeming disjointedness between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is what Keller says. He says, I will always remember his answer. Dr. Moiter insisted that we were all one people of God. Then he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promise of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and He led us out. Now we are on our way to the promised land, We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. 
And then Dr. Mater concluded, now think about it. A Christian could say the same thing, almost word for word. Tim Keller says, my young self was thunderstruck. I had held the vague, unexamined impression that the Old Testament people were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, that were to, but that today we were freely forgiven and accepted by faith. This little thought experiment showed me, in a stroke, not only that Israelites had been saved by grace and that God's salvation had been by costly atonement and grace all along, but also that the pursuit of holiness, obedience, and deep community should characterize Christians as well. So it's important for you and me to recognize that the Old Testament is not rendered obsolete by the, Old, by the New Testament. Instead, it remains as a foundation for understanding God's character, for understanding His redemptive plan and His moral standards. And so as you and I study the Old Testament, look at how it connects to the New Testament and how it ultimately finds its fulfillment in the life and teachings of Jesus. Second, Jesus fulfills, not abolishes, the Old Testament prophecies and laws. Jesus affirms the preservation and relevance of every detail of the law until its fulfillment. Again, he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. His words assure us that the Old Testament remains authoritative and applicable until the end of time when Jesus returns and heaven and earth pass away. You see, the entire Old Testament pointed forward to Christ and the blessings that He brings. In Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus has resurrected, and He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. And these two men, He tells them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. You cannot set Jesus against the Old Testament because Jesus was for the Old Testament, not against it. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So how did he do this? In what ways did Christ fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, first of all, he fulfilled the demands of the law. And he did that in two ways, by his life and by his death and resurrection. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law by his life because he lived a perfect life of obedience to the law. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, Jesus may have set aside some traditions of his day, but he never set aside the commandments of the Old Testament. He lived a perfect life of unswerving obedience to God's perfect and holy law. And Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law by his death and resurrection because he took the law's punishment for sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is said, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The demands of the law were simple. Keep it or die. Jesus kept it so he didn't have to die. None of us kept it so we all deserve to die. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law for us 
so we don't need to die. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law when He died for us, taking the law's punishment for our sin. And He demonstrated that that price had been paid when He rose again from the dead. So that's the first way that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. He fulfilled the demands of the law. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. We just read Luke chapter 24 where Jesus took those two men on the road to Emmaus through the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them how they all pointed to Him. More than 300 Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus and were, filled by, were fulfilled by Him in His life and in His death and resurrection. John chapter 5, verse 39 says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. So James Boyce wrote, It is stated as plainly as it can be stated. If you reject the Bible, you will reject Jesus. If you believe the Bible, you will accept Him. He is the subject of it. The whole Bible is about Jesus. How did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures? He fulfilled the demands of the law. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And He also revealed the true meaning of the law. There's an interesting phrase that you'll notice Jesus used throughout Matthew chapter 5. Again and again, Jesus says the words, but I tell you. He would quote a, a common interpretation of the Old Testament, and then He would say, but I tell you. The prophets would say, thus says the Lord. The apostles would say, it is written. Only Jesus says, but I tell you. As John Stott writes, his purpose was not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the true depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. Jesus revealed the true meaning of the law, which had to do with your heart and your motivations, not just your outward behavior. This is what the Apostle Paul uh, reflected. Uh, he, he reflected Jesus' teachings in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. He says, the commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice that the commandments aren't replaced by this command, but they're summed up by this command. We love our neighbor not by ignoring God's commands, but by keeping them. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament in all of its parts. He fulfilled the demands of the law. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He revealed the true meaning of the law. And so that's our second point, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But some people misinterpret this. They hold the mistaken view of nullifying the Old Testament. There are people who have wrongly misinterpreted Jesus' words in his ministry to, to mean that he abolished or he nullified the law. And this misinterpretation, it stems from a failure to understand that Jesus' mission was what? To fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish them. When, when you hear the word fulfill, think complete. Jesus came to complete the prophecies, the promises, and the requirements of the Old Testament. He demonstrated that they find their ultimate fulfillment in Him. I want you to think about the relationship between a set of blueprints and the finished building. Every detail in the blueprints serves a purpose and it contributes to the building's overall integrity and beauty. The, the finished building fulfills or completes the blueprints. 
The Old Testament is the set of blueprints, and Jesus is the finished building. And the blueprints are valuable, right? They show us the plan of the architect. They let us know what he thinks, and they let us know what we should expect. But the blueprints are not the final piece of the project. The building is the result, the the completion of the blueprint's intention. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law. So we must recognize that Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament prophecies and laws. The Old Testament points us to Christ, and through Him, we understand the ultimate purpose and fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Third, Jesus calls us to a deeper quality, not quantity, of righteousness. Jesus challenges His followers to pursue a righteousness that surpasses the external obedience of the scribes and Pharisees. He states in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of all of the shocking and surprising things that Jesus says in this passage, this is the most shocking. Because how in the world can anyone exceed their righteousness? You know, statistically, Stanford University ranks as one of the toughest schools to give an acceptance letter. The university recently updated their admissions standards, and they stated that only 5% of applying students are accepted. In 2017, over 42,000 students applied, but just over 2,000 were accepted. On their website, they give students realistic answers to the question, what is the academic standard to be accepted? An ACT score of 33 or higher will put you in the top 50% of applicants. However, the average score for accepted students is 35. A perfect score is a 36. Accepted students will also need an SAT score of 1520, an average GPA of 4.18, plus a robust resume of extracurricular activities, leadership qualities, references, and recommendations. Of course, new students also have to pay $60,000 a year in tuition to Stanford. And so the bottom line is, if you want to get into Stanford, you better be perfect or just amazing. So if entering the kingdom of heaven is harder than getting into Stanford, what do we do? Do we just need to work harder? Do we just need to do better? Jesus says no. His disciples are called to a different kind and quality of righteousness, not an increased quantity. Jesus emphasizes that true righteousness originates from a transformed heart rather than adhering to external factors. Righteousness belongs in the realms of grace. You see, by the time of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees had identified 613 commands that they followed meticulously. 365 of them were negative, meaning things that they were to avoid, and 248 of them were positive, meaning things that they ought to do. And they believed that a life externally conformed to the commands of God would produce a pure inner heart. But Jesus reveals that genuine righteousness comes from the inside out, not the outside in. It's a righteousness that we receive from Christ that's rooted in a personal relationship with Him. It doesn't matter how many commands you keep 
It cannot produce the righteous life that God desires. Only Jesus perfectly kept the law and fulfilled the law. So embrace the quality of His righteousness, not the quantity of external righteousness. Only a new birth can enable us to live as a true disciple. But still, some people misinterpret this. They hold a legalistic view of righteousness. And this has happened throughout church history where where people misunderstand Jesus' words, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, as a call to legalistic adherence to the Old Testament laws. And this misinterpretation reduces righteousness to nothing more than a checklist of external actions devoid of genuine heart transformation. It fails to grasp the central message of the gospel that righteousness comes through faith in Christ. When all we do is rely on self-effort, we miss out on the transformation that that we're given through the grace of God through Jesus' perfect sacrifice. After selling his pickup truck, 22-year-old Wesley French decided that he wanted it back. And so Wesley and a few of his friends mugged the new truck owner, and they hit him with a two-by-four. Then Wesley and his friends fled the scene in their getaway car, a green Nissan 240SX. The muggers thought that they had a foolproof plan to avoid the police. They covered the green Nissan with a fresh coat of black spray paint. By changing their car, the car's color, they were able to outrun the Washington State Police for five hours. Unfortunately, as Wesley and his buddies headed north through Washington, they never bothered to change the North Dakota license plates. The police easily spotted the getaway car, and Wesley was sentenced to one year in jail. According to one news report, now he might be making license plates. You know, that's about as ridiculous as people who try to spray paint over their lives without allowing Jesus to transform them from the inside out. Jesus doesn't seek surface-level adherence to rules and regulations. Jesus' call to righteousness, it goes beyond mere external observance. We don't earn righteousness through our self-effort, but we do it through a heart that's transformed from the inside out. And when we come to faith in Christ, His righteousness becomes ours. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was through his belief. He goes on to say that Christ's righteousness has been imputed. It's been transferred to us. And when Jesus' righteousness becomes ours, He begins to shape us and mold us and empowers us to live out the commands of Scripture with love and authenticity. That there is a world full of misinterpretations and misconceptions, but Jesus himself affirms the divine origin and authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. He fulfills the prophecies and laws contained within it. The Old Testament serves as a crucial foundation for our faith. It reveals God's character, His redemptive plan, and His moral standards. And so as followers of Jesus, let's avoid nullifying or minimizing the Old Testament. Let's avoid reducing righteousness to mere external compliance. Instead, let's embrace Jesus, whose righteousness can become ours through faith, and who then empowers us to live out the principles of the law. You know, one of the ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament is through what's called types. 
a type is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New. Once again, Tim Keller helps us see how Jesus is the true and better reality that the Old Testament pointed to. This is what he writes. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void and create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, we can now say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love, for me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice. The Bible's not about you. It's all about him. In the movie, The Book of Eli, Denzel Washington's character lives in a post-apocalyptic America where he attempts to transport a mysterious book across the country to the West Coast. Towards the end, the audience discovers the book he is carrying is none other than the Bible. But the biggest surprise, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, you find out that his character has been blind the entire time. Now, there are hints throughout the movie, but it's only fully revealed at the end. But once you know that, when you go back and watch it again, you see it in every scene. The the movie takes on a greater intensity. You have a, a greater appreciation and a greater understanding for what he's doing in each and every scene. And as you read the New Testament, you learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. And once you know that, it changes the way you read the Old Testament because you begin to see Jesus everywhere you look. So don't toss aside the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. It helps us understand why Jesus came and what He came to do. And most importantly, it points to Jesus. It's all about Him. It's always been about Him. And it will always 
be about him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. We thank you for the the timeless principles that we find in the Old Testament. God, we thank you for for the the hundreds of signposts that, that point to Jesus. And God, we thank you that for those of us who live on this side of the cross, we're able to look back and see how it's always been about Jesus. And God, my prayer today is that for us, in our lives, that it would always be about Jesus. That that we wouldn't minimize your word, we wouldn't toss it aside, but we would lift high your word because it tells us who you are. It tells us what you came to do. It tells us how we can have a righteousness, not our own, but how we can have Christ's righteousness. And if there is anybody today who does not have the righteousness of Christ imputed, given to them, I pray that they would accept the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf, that they would put their faith in Jesus, that today would be the start of something brand new for them. And I pray that all of us, that we would spend time in your word and we would see how it all points to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.